Welcome to Philosophizant, the show where we discuss the philosophy of philosophers and the philosophy of doers. We dive deep into traditional philosophy, political theory, and history, and also explore what personal philosophies motivate the most creative, innovative, and driven people of today's world. You can decide. Is this a show about philosophy, or is it not? Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Derek Mobley, who is running for Guilford County Commissioner. He plans on strengthening programs designed to prevent youth from acquiring criminal records through placing them in constructive internship programs, attracting investment by building an esports stadium, and improving the county's use of technology. Mobley has a background as a corporate economist and holds degrees in history and economics from University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and an MBA from University of North Carolina Greensboro. Disclaimer, since recording this, I decided to begin working for Derek Mobley's campaign as a volunteer. Part of the reason I decided to do this interview was in order to determine if Derek Mobley's political ideas aligned enough with my own in order to be comfortable working for his campaign. We do not agree on everything, but because of Derek Mobley's dedication to using innovation for good, helping youth at high risk of acquiring criminal records, and using investment to increase opportunities, I decided that I indeed want to work for him and give him my full endorsement. endorsement. So Derek, my first question for you is, what made you want to begin this endeavor of running for office? Is this a dream you have always had, or is it something you decided to take up recently? So... Sure. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. Um, I think the first time I thought about getting into politics, you know, I can really take it back to fourth grade is we had this sort of group activity where we had to write a letter to the principal, you know, talking about things that we liked about her and we had to do it as a group. Uh, and the group that I was mm-hmm. in, you know, you think about when you're trying to work in groups, everybody has different ideas. Uh, and sort of my idea with the group was, okay, let's talk about what our you know, what our main idea is individually and figure out how do we package that in, you know, to this letter that we send to the principal. And, you know, we did that. And so when we finally got to present it, you know, our group had the longest, you know, nicely structured letter and it was the one that kind of won and they sent it on to the principal. And that was really the first time okay. where I realized, you know, I'm like, oh, I have a knack for kind of bringing people together, you know, and it wasn't just my idea, right? It's yeah. like sort of my idea was let's bring our ideas together and create something better. And that was when I first got kind of that instinct of this is something I really like to do. And so, you know, to my mind, that's what politics should be. Uh, and so just I, I've kind of been on that journey, I think, for the for my entire life, you know, at some point having that type of activity. So Okay. Okay, but you're uh, you're you're not like Bill or Hillary Clinton who are like dead set on becoming president since like age of five, no, are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, tell me what what made you decide to study economics? Because it sounds like you discovered your your people skills in um in elementary school, but economics also requires a lot of uh, statistical and sort of more mathematical knowledge. Right. So I. Uh, y- I started basically as a history major at Chapel Hill. Okay. I've, I've been, always been a history enthusiast and I took some of the AP courses and I realized, you know, I could kind of get in and out of college in two and a half, you know, years if I wanted to. And I said, well, I don't really want to do that. I want, number one, I want the full college yeah. experience. And number two, you know, 
what you can get with a history degree can be constricting. Yeah, you can yeah. be a teacher, you can go into law, but it's a little <laughs> bit more confining. So I said, what can I do that's huh. kind of practical? And that's how I kind of fell into economics initially. Right. Um, and so it really took me about two years uh, of economics classes before I realized that I really enjoyed it, you know, kind okay. of analyzing decisions and allo- allocating resources yeah, yeah. efficiently. Uh, so it was kind of, I, I grew into it and it wasn't by intention. So, wow, that's, that's really good. I took macroeconomics and, and microeconomics and I really enjoyed those two classes. But when I took microeconomic theory, now that that's where it got a little, that's what a little they call difficult it. for me. Sometimes it's a, it's a weed out class. That's yeah. when you know, do you want to do this as a profession or not? You know, oh, yeah. I got a name in the class, but I probably don't remember much. Right. <laughs> All right. So did, now history and economics. In terms of like social studies, those are seen as kind of diametrically opposed disciplines in a way, whereas history is much more uh, not necessarily subjective, but it's much more about analyzing uh, rather than using data to analyze. Historians can choose to look at a specific speech. They can they can be subjective in in choosing what to look at, mm-hmm. whereas with economics, you, you you don't have that liberty. You can't pick and choose your data points. Um, because with history, you can't you can't study everything that happens, right? Every historian has the job of, of being a selector of what's important and, and choosing to highlight what's important. Whereas with economics, the way of thinking is is different. You're analyzing uh, large sets of data, and you're, you're you're firmly you have to firmly prove with mathematics that there's a causation or a correlation. You can't um, you, you don't have the liberty of looking at things from the larger scope that history. Chooses. Would you say that's right? So how would how do the two disciplines go together? Well, in that's world? an interesting perspective. You know, huh. I can see where you're coming from, but you know, because economics kind of and I think sort of grew out of history because you yeah. kind of people think of the foundational economic uh-huh. text as the Wealth of Nations, which is written yeah, by yeah. Adam Smith, and that one is it's it's kind of a historical exposition of mm. why he thinks certain nations are wealthy and some of them aren't. So I think you know. Economics kind of started out as history, right. and it became more mathematical over time. So there's a guy named Alfred Marshall okay. um, in the late 1800s who really propagated mm-hmm. that kind of mathematical, analytical yeah, version yeah. of economics. And Paul Samuelson, who's another kind of famous mathematizer of economics. So definitely mainstream economics has become much more mathematical, mm. you know, kind well, of especially, like say, Especially microeconomics, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. And I, re- I remember reading about this in my microeconomic theory class, and I learned that uh, a lot of the original mathematical economic economists um, started to move in that direction because of uh, a disillusion with the historical approach, particularly the the, uh, Marxist historical historical materialist approach. Right, right. So... How, so, so studying. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious. Maybe I didn't phrase this well at first, but but studying both disciplines, is there ever a time where you feel that uh, the knowledge you gain from one is irreconcilable with the other, or are both sort of reconcilable and, and adding to your understanding, or are they just? Is that not a valid question because you're just studying two different things altogether? No, I mean I I think they they relate very closely. Hmm. I would say, um, and there's definitely a lot of I would maybe cross-pollination is, is the right word. And so, yeah, I would say I don't ever feel like they're irreconcilable. I, okay. I think, you know, the problem with economics, in my opinion, sometimes is it's too narrow. Yeah. Um, 
and it gets it to where you can't answer significant questions. Like people say that about micro, it's become increasingly obsessed with very oh, small problems. Whereas history kind of has the opposite problem oh. where we're, people are trying to craft grand historical narratives. Oh, I see. And sometimes, you know, that an economist is like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, what are your assumptions? What are your postulates? How do I work this out as a theory? Uh, so, you know, I definitely think I can, there are problems on each side, but there are lots of places where they, I feel like they mesh and one can inform the other personally. Hmm. So. And now recently I've been reading, uh, a lot of thinkers such as Robert Reich, who, who is, uh, an economist by profession. No, no, Robert Reich is the UC Berkeley public policy. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure which institute specifically on UC Berkeley, but he studies public policy at, uh, UC Berkeley. And he's, he's, I mean, he's, uh, he's, he does research. Um, but his books are, they read very historical. He describes, uh, the large scale social transformations that, um, affect the economy and, and, and the feedback loop between politics, economics, and society. So, um, and he's on the left, but there are also thinkers on the right, such as Thomas Sowell, mm-hmm. who do sort of similar things. So, yeah. uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's good that you were able to find a way to synthesize the two branches of knowledge. I think that synthesizing different perspectives is always a better way to understand things. Um, I want to ask, I want to ask next, next about your, your work experience. So you're, you're right now you're a data manager at Volvo. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did that uh, continue to, and you also worked at um, BB&T. Mm-hmm. So did those experiences um, shape your views in any way or was it, or inspire you to, or, 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 or raise an awareness about certain issues by working in those industries? Yeah, I, I would think a little bit. Uh, first off, you know, it's kind of. I mean, you seem to be very innovation focused. Yeah. So, yeah. Get going from first, you know, the university world to the working mm-hmm. world is, is very different, you know, because you see what kind of skill, you know, like the university is, there's always this, I think, tension between is the university supposed to just prepare you to be, you know, like a a critical thinking human being, or is it supposed to prepare you to do a job, you know? (laughs) Uh, So when I got to BB&T, you know, I realized they really needed me to do a few skills, some of which I had learned a little bit about, uh, you know, in school, but a lot of the stuff that I used in school, of course, never really came into play at BB&T. So I kind of experienced that first of all is, you know, so depending on what you think the university is for, you could probably have different opinions about education. Um, Also, you know, with with BB&T, it's kind of funny. I I don't know how much you know about them, but they're one of their former CEOs. John Allison was a big proponent of Ayn Rand, who is an objectivist. Oh, yes. I've read Ayn Rand. Uh, And yeah, so that was kind of my first, you know, I decided if I was going to work for the company, that was a big part of the culture. I was going to spend a little bit more time learning about objectivism (laughs) in their their culture. (laughs) So, you know, that was a big, you know, experience for me because, you know. Ayn Rand was kind of, I feel like, persona non grata from my uh, previous, uh, you know, intellectual background. So huh. that that's kind of with BB&T. With, with Volvo, it's it's been much more practical. You yeah. know, we work with uh, transportation driving the economy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I solve very day-to-day, I feel like, more concrete problems. Yeah. I started reading Atlas. I can see why BB&T uh, would be an Ayn Rand company. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I started reading Atlas Shrugged. Uh, and, and then it, it turned me off. So I have to, I have to say I stopped reading and I, I regret that because I, now I, now I have the, 
the conviction that when you start a book, you should, you should, especially if you get like halfway, then you should finish it mm-hmm. to do, do justice to the author. But anyway, at that time, I didn't like the book. And then I told my friend, uh, a friend I have at Chapel Hill, his name is John Bobbio. He's a very entrepreneurial soul. Uh, he's starting his own business about Ayn Rand. And then he became a big proponent of Ayn Rand and started telling me uh, how good Ayn Rand was again. <laughs> so I, so I'm, I'm just going to explain to the audience what Ayn Rand believes. So Ayn Rand takes her uh, ideology originally from Nietzsche's egoism, the idea that there's two types of morality, so the slave morality of being caring, compassionate, and um, uh, humble towards others, and then the master morality, which argues that uh, some people are born as kings or are born with the natural, uh, almost predatory instinct to, to gain and to be ambitious and to disregard what others, others say. And so Ayn Rand took Nietzsche's philosophy and placed it in economic terms. And so she used, uh, that as well as her own experience growing up in, in Soviet Russia, her own observations in order to attack, attack previous philosophers for their sense of duty. She was a conservative, but she really didn't like Christianity because Christianity um, has an ethics of duty. And, and so her, her ideology is that we should pursue self-interest. And in, in a society where we're allowed to pursue self-interest and n- not be obligated towards others, the only society where that's possible is capitalism and, and very laissez-faire capitalism. Um, I don't know if she was one of the we-don't-need-roads type of people. Um, or she would say, she, we, we don't need the government to build yeah, roads, is what yeah, she yeah, would yeah. say. She, but uh, from reading from reading Atlas Shrugged, she really has a disdain for the type of intellectual who who supports social justice and a disdain uh, for any any idea of the common good. But it it is a very interesting book, I have to say. It did make make me think. So, is there anything in that that or any other part of her philosophy that I left out that you might agree with? Well, I mean. I, I will say I was able to power through Atlas Shrugged. I wasn't able to do the Fountainhead because it's basically the same story, oh, in my really? opinion, over. I got about halfway through it and I had to stop. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, I, I am a sub- proponent, you know, of capitalism. Yeah. And there's a lot of different names we could throw out where, you know, I, I think Ayn Rand's a very provocative thinker. Uh, but you have uh, a couple other folks like uh, Joseph Schumpeter and Friedrich Hayek, who I think put an idea similar to hers out, but it do it in a better way. Like Joseph Schumpeter, creative destruction is the term that he coined. Yeah, for, I've heard of that. Capitalist process. Huh. Uh, it also kind of opened me to. Um, what exactly is creative creative destruction? Is it like the, the the idea that some businesses that are bad businesses fail and and new businesses spring up? Is that what it's referring to? That's sort of the idea. Okay. Is I mean, the, the famous quote from his book, I'd probably par- paraphrase it, but he's like, the true story of capitalism isn't how it makes things more efficient, but it's how it breaks down uh, different social structures. Uh, and and that's what his book, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, is, is about. Uh, you know, he kind of takes the opposite view, whereas we talk about Alfred Marshall, who likes perfect competition and uh, you know, fine. You talk about fine tuning okay. the economy through taxes. Joseph Schumpeter is basically like, hey, you know, a monopoly is your statement that you've done a good job. You know, oh, you've, crea- you've created a pro- product that's so superior huh. that people can't compete with you. So like Amazon. It, exactly. Amazon, yeah. like those those the startup folks are much more uh, a fan, I would say, of Schumpeter than okay. they are of someone like Alfred okay. Marshall. We're back on philosophizant. And I want to ask. Less on the philosophical side of how did the working at, was it BB&T mm-hmm. change your views 
and more on the practical economic side. Did, did working this job um, change? I know a big part of your platform is bringing jobs and investment to Greensboro. So did working this job change your views on what's needed to bring jobs and investment and prosperity? Yeah, I think it did. Or inform, it, not change necessarily, but inform your views. Yeah, it, it definitely informed it because, you know, when you work in banking, I'll say you, you get to see almost every industry because pretty much every industry relies on banking for some form of finance. And, mm -hmm. you know, with banks, they're almost, they're like, to me, they're almost like churches in a way. It sounds like sacrilegious, but it's one of the things I tell people is, you know, if you look at banks, they have these big fancy buildings, right? And all of it is about giving people confidence. And so bankers are actually really powerful. So, you know, you, mm. because you look at the balance sheets of the companies and you basically decide if that company gets financing to expand or not. Okay. Uh, and, you know, you're using the deposits from the public essentially to, to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say the kind of the years in banking, mm. you know, help me see, you know, what do the banks look for? I'm curious, know, for, personally, is there a difference between when banks look at a local business versus a, a large business with, with how they decide how to get loans? And what, what is the implication for that for local economic growth? I mean, yeah, I would say that it's definitely it takes place at different levels of the organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody at a branch can give a loan to a small business. Whereas if you want to give a big loan to a large company, you know, that's a big decision that takes place, you know, by committee. Um, and, you know, I think it is, it's important. One of the things for your, our region in Guilford County mm -hmm. where I think we've suffered is we don't have a major bank really in, really? in the tri, in the triad area or in Guilford County, you know, not you one to, based in, not one based. I we, see. We did have BB&T, which was based in Winston-Salem oh, for okay. Scythe. They've moved to Charlotte. Uh, several large banking institutions have moved to Charlotte, and I think that's really helped them with growth because you can just, if you want to finance the Panthers yeah. Stadium, right, the fact that you have several major banks there makes that a reality, whereas here it's it's just a little bit tougher. So, Okay. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, in your opinion, is I've read something about how local businesses keep more money in the community because instead of giving out profits to shareholders – um and, and profits to owners it, it goes directly back into the community and is spent there mm -hmm. would you agree with that or, or qualify that or disagree i guess i'd say i would i would qualify it yeah. i mean it's it's definitely true um uh, you know that smaller businesses mm. do tend to keep a larger proportion of their money in the community yeah but this is funny i you know, I know we're kind of switching, but it also kind of harkens back to the discussion with Schumpeter is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, larger businesses are able to operate at a much larger scale. So it may be, you know, they're keeping 10 percent of their money in the community versus a small business, which keeps 80 percent. But if that company is 50 times the size of the small business because of how efficiently right. it operates, Overall, you know, economy can, scale. yeah, people can be better yeah. off. So it's that's where you have to qualify it, I think, and, and balance it out. Right, uh, right. You know, ideally, you would want a very large company headquartered in your region. Okay. <laughs> mm. I think there might also be uh, a case about loyalty. Maybe a, a small business might be less less likely to outsource, but that's more of a conversation for another day. Right. Yeah. Now, since we're talking about business, I want to ask about some of your economic policies uh, specifically. Um, so here on your, your list of goals, one of the goals is 
uh, a business advisory commission to provide feedback on business implications of new and existing taxes, mm-hmm. a, a digital strategy commission in order to create and monitor a uh, five-year plan for digital instru- infrastructure. Maybe you don't want to call it a five-year plan. I don't know. Maybe I'm just I a know, history nerd. I know. It takes it you sounds, back to yeah. communism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a retirement commission to ensure that Greensboro is safe and li- livable. Let's start with the business advisory commission. Mm-hmm. How would... um. How, how do you how do you envision this functioning and and why why do we need this? So I mean the, the way a lot of advisory commissions function. So zoning is an example. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of uh, governments have to have a zoning commission to make and they basically help inform how you make changes in the use of land. So the principle is really similar because uh, right now you know we don't really have that in our county. And so whenever you want to make changes with property taxes or, or fees or anything like that, what normally happens is is the city, or in this case, the county staff would make a recommendation about, you know, for the budget, we need to raise property taxes or whatnot. And then the county commissioners, you know, would maybe mm-hmm. take feedback from the public and do it yes or no. So the problem with that, I feel like, is, you know, this, the county staff has their own agenda yeah. whenever they propose the increase. Um, and the Counselor, you're the, the explain explain the agenda is, is in like a perverse incentive or something. It, it can be, you know, I'm not going to say that they're automatically perverse, yeah. but you know, they more revenue for them helps okay. them grow their departments. So you know, they kind of have mm. an interest in expanding the tax base, you know, through raising mm. tax rates mm. or or you know having more ordinances, so they need more people to enforce them. Yeah. So that's just that's kind of the incentive of a bureaucracy. And you can get input from the public, right? And if they do something that's really egregious, you might have angry people show up and, you know, cause the county commissioners to change their mind. But, you know, to me, I think it would be better if you kind of had this advisory body in the middle where we say, hey, this is what we're going to do. And you have these, you know, folks with business experience who have been appointed by the commissioners who can kind of look at it and give their assessment. And ultimately, it's still up to the commissioners. You know, they could still vote to raise the taxes, even if the advisory body said that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. But they at least, you know, a lot of times the uh, the staff is going to tell them that it's a good idea. What would be a potential benefit or, or a potential con of, of raising or lowering taxes? So um, it's one of those, it, it depends on where you are. You yeah. know, I, I don't know if you know the Laffer curve, you know, sometimes. Well, I've heard of that. It, yeah, yes. if, if, uh, Can you explain that for the... The audience? Yeah, so the Laffer curve is kind of the idea where, uh, you know, as tax rates go up, people's incentive to work goes down so it can be counterproductive. You can raise taxes and mm. that can cause the economy to contract and then you'll actually get less tax revenue. Whereas, you right. know, maybe if you lowered it a little bit and people worked more and the economy expanded more, you would get more revenue. Right. So it's, it's a little bit controversial. And invest as well, not just work. Yeah, and yeah. invest more. Yeah. So it, it you know, it kind of, it was very popular in the 80s. How, mm-hmm. you know, applicable it is when is always debatable. Um, I was trying to think back to the, I guess the question was, uh, that would be the example right. where, you know, if, if we really feel like, hey, this increase in property taxes mm-hmm. is not really necessary and mm-hmm. it'll be counterproductive, uh, you know, maybe the business community would be the first people to see that. Whereas where it can be good, uh, which is something we may face, I'll say in Guilford County, is, you know, like for me, public education is very important. Right. The county is a big uh, financer of public right, schools, right. and if you feel like the schools have been underfunded, uh, you know, if you increase the tax rate and you get more revenue, and that leads to better schools, mm-hmm. which leads to better talent, which leads to 
business growth, yeah. you know, that's where that can, you can make that argument. So. Mm -hmm. And uh, now let's move on to your digital strategy commission. I think that's something I don't think many local governments would in North Carolina have a digital strategy commission. Right. So what is, what is that about? So, I mean, you know, this is something we see a lot in, in especially bigger companies, you know, the really? digital transformation, trying to move okay. away. You know, you would be surprised in local government how much is still done, you know, paperwork wise, really? you know, how many, how many systems have been around since the eighties, you know, computers that are They're still bought using, out by the paper yeah, printing companies. Yeah. People that are still <laughs> using Windows XP or something like that. Uh, we actually had there recently huh. in Guilford County, uh, there was a, a hack of the supplier of their phone system and people mm. couldn't call, you know, like the register right, right. of deeds office. So this would basically be saying like, Hey, we need a, a commission that says, you know, what does Guilford County government look like with 21st century digital infrastructure? I'm curious, do you envision a blockchain technology being utilized in local, if you know what that is? I do know what blockchain is. Yes. I, I would say not in the immediate future. Okay. I have my own opinions on, you know, blockchain is really, is very popular and I see where it can be useful <laughs> in certain areas, but I think it's a little bit. I mean, all the, from what I understand, all the major banking companies are moving towards developing blockchain technology, Bank of America. Does BB&T have any blockchain initiatives? I'm sure they do. Yeah. Everybody, like I said, it's the hot topic right now. Right. So everybody wants to say that they're doing something with blockchain. But, oh. you know, again, for me, it's been around for 12 years and I've yet to really see, like, I understand. what yeah. is it for? You know, maybe we'll figure well, it it's, out. It's for but, providing transparency because you don't have to store information on a centralized server anymore. So the idea is for, for government, and I did some research on this a while back, is that you could have... Um, blockchain systems that would be available to, to residents in order to keep uh, keep the government accountable and there's no way that corrupt officials could could doctor the data mm -hmm. in that sense and unless of course you enter in doctored data in the first place then it's well <laughs> it's not it's not perfect it's right. I, I, I think believe it, it, it does yeah. have potential it's uh -huh. just you know we'll we'll see mm -hmm. that that would be more of you know 10 mm -hmm. 15 years i feel like and, for, and the retirement commission I'm i'm curious about this one because i I was having a debate with my friend who's a total free market Ayn Rand libertarian the other day. Uh, and she texted me, uh, Roman, I just realized 15% of my paycheck gets taken away for Medicare and mm -hmm. Social Security by the government. Those bastards. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, I've, I've been thinking about the role of the federal government in retirement with providing those services, but I haven't, I haven't ever thought about the role of local governments. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you expand on that? Sure. Uh, so, you know, one of the things about America as a whole, mm -hmm. Guilford County as well, you know, we're, we're going to go through a period for the next 20 years or so, at least, where a larger segment of the population is going to be older. Um, right. And the thing about, you know, the, they may have mobility issues, you know, they're going to be in, in declining Social health. Security is running out of money, isn't it? Well, I, mean, I understand. It, it could. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a little bit, you know, the county doesn't have a lot of control over that. But mm -hmm. that would be an issue if something were to happen with Social Security that could hurt the income of those retired right. you know, individuals. But kind of my, my thinking behind that is, you know, we're going to have a larger, older population. The one good thing about those folks a lot of times is they generally have more money because they've saved it up. So if you have mm -hmm. a larger retired population here, that is a good potential customer base. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it may sound kind of silly, but uh, a lot of the things that I feel like, you know, the younger community is looking for kind of mirrors what, you know, older people right. actually need. So, you know, 
good broadband con- uh, mm. connectivity because you know we found out a lot of them don't want to go to retirement homes. If they can, they want to age in the house that they have. Yeah, for them to do sense. that, they need high quality internet connections. They need good public transportation. You know, they're not going to be flying all over the world anymore. Right. So they want to have quality parks where they can go and spend time. So really, if you're, uh, and, and that's what the AARP, which mm. is the association for basically retired people, they have a designation you can get called being a safe and livable community. So the idea behind that retirement oh. commission is to say, hey, let's make sure that we have this. Does this so that Guilford have, or does no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Certainly not. Yeah. So that's it's a, it's a goal, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we're an unsafe and unlivable community. Is that what it means? <laughs> no, I don't know that the converse is true. The converse. We, yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, my my grandparents live uh, abroad. My fam- my mother's family is from China, and so there in, in Asia, the the idea is that it's like the family's responsibility to send um, send money to take care of their parents. But of course, this causes a lot of social issues uh, in a lot of East Asian countries because you know if you don't have um, don't have family that's willing to take care of you, and there's there's no social security, you're gonna be like uh, trying to get trying to get a job at uh, at, at a very old age, and another another problem is um, age discrimination in the workforce. You know, a lot of a lot of retired people want to remain active and, and do like a part time job at a coffee shop or something, or or volunteer or something. But um, I don't know much about age discrimination. But have you have you looked into that issue at all? That's uh, because I know like remaining active in, reti- uh, in retirement is also important for good health. Right. I mean, I, I'll say a, a little bit. And I mean, that, that is a real thing. Age yeah. discrimination in the workplace or, you know, even uh, and, and yeah. when we say age discrimination, it can be older versus younger. It's much worse you know? in Asia, <laughs> but, but in, in the U.S. it also exists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Now I want to uh, take a pivot. Uh, let's talk about the city budgeting and compensation. So here it says you plan to incorporate zero-based budgeting and benchmarking exercise in the budgeting process. I was this was um, a little bit surprising to me considering you're running as a Democrat because I thought of that as more of a conservative position uh, because from what I understand it's it's like taking account of like every every expense right and, and I know and uh, tell correct me if I'm wrong but in, in business, zero-based budgeting is uh, talking about, like, counting, like, how many sheets of paper you're using. Well, like, well, what it really means is you're, you're – Okay. It, because My business really, class is wrong. No, no, I, I mean, it's it, – yeah. I can see where you're coming from. There's really – because there's two kind of major approaches to budgeting. One is, you know, hey, what did we spend last year? Inflation was 2%, so we'll just raise the budget by 2%. That's how a lot of budgets are done. That's lazy mm-hmm. budgeting, essentially. Zero, yeah, zero-based budgeting is when you say, okay, you know, we allocated money for this. Uh, did that make sense? What happened? So right? more like looking at marginal return. Exactly. Yeah, and so that's why you know it's. It, I could see it being seen as conservative, but you know the idea behind it is more efficiently allocating your money. Oh, okay. So at the end of the day, you know, you could end up with the same size budget or a big bigger budget. You just might be spending it on different things. You might say, hey, we funded this program and it didn't work. And then the lazy government approach is to say, okay, well, maybe they need 10% more money to make right, it work, right. right? Whereas zero-based budgeting is like, okay, we funded it and it didn't work, and that's because it doesn't make sense. So we're going to take this money and we're going to put it to a program mm. that was very successful, right? And how see would, if we can build on that. So how, how would you know if, let's say, the problem – I'm curious about this. 
you don't have to have an answer because it's a complicated question. But say, for example, you, you find this program and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you know exactly why it's not working and, and what needs to change? Because this might be an important program, say like a, a program, uh, one of the programs you're proposing. Mm-hmm. If you're... Um, would the zero-based budgeting have a way to determine the, the broken variable, or is that something for a different It would be a different, different thing. I mean, yeah. you, you would really have to, I think, try to talk to the people who are supposed to be served by the program, because usually, you know, the person who's in charge, their answer will usually be that you didn't give me enough money, right? Um, mm. So you need to talk to the, I would say, whoever it's supposed to serve, and usually they'll tell you, well, hey, it didn't work because it didn't meet this need, or okay. you know, they gave me this form and then I didn't know where to send it. It can be something that you know that simple. So, mm-hmm. and uh, also under the budgeting and compensation um, comp- compensation goals, you write that we want to encourage special assignments and continuing education for city employees. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that. Why do city employees need continuing education? And I think well, county employees. County. Think, yeah, uh, but. Uh, yeah, so that is uh, you. You did write city here. I that did might write be city. Maybe, maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe that's because I hadn't updated it okay. yet. But yeah, so I mean, that's really about keeping people intellectually engaged. So mm-hmm. you don't want, you know, like I think a lot of people's image sometimes of a typical government worker is, hey, you give them this job, they do these five <laughs> things for twenty years, and then they retire, right? Uh, and you know, I don't want that. I don't think they want that. So it's more about, you know, how how do we give someone a career path and keep them up to date on the newest developments. Cause that goes back to the, you know, the idea behind the digital strategy commission is a right. lot of this, a lot of these systems are working the way that they worked 15 or 20 mm. years ago, because is, been, is that because of cultural preferences or because of like an official policy in place that it has to be run that way? I think it's more of the culture. Cause yeah. you know, one of the things I, if you're, you know, from Asia, you're maybe familiar with Singapore, which is a very well run city slash, yeah. you know, country. And, you know, they're a bureaucracy just like, you know, Guilford County or the city of Greensboro is a bureaucracy, but mm-hmm. they just, operate a lot better, <laughs> you know, so you can see it's possible, well, you know, we don't have to become no. Singapore because no, no, no. they do some things that, you know, might be questionable Human from rights our standpoint. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I mean, but but they have different, uh, you know, some of their governmental, you know, policies yeah, yeah, their employees, yeah, mm-hmm. clearly makes them perform better. So. Actually, a lot, of, there's some progressives who really admire the Singaporean healthcare system because the, the way they do it is that private companies are incentivized to innovate and there's also public funding and they, and they do it somehow in a way where there's not um, perverse incentives. So you're not just giving companies money to the most established companies. So yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, speaking of innovative, um, innovative policies, your campaign has quite a few. Um, I know one of the things you're thinking about is uh, giving wet and wild water park to expand and become more, uh, as well as a water park, a traditional theme park as well. That's something really fascinating idea. Can you expand on how you want to do that? Sure. So, uh, I, and it's, it's actually something that was discussed maybe 10 or 15 years ago, mm. uh, you know, just making it a mixed use theme park. But I mean, it would, you know, basically involve working with the company that, that owns them to, uh, to say, hey, let's make this more than a water park or, you know, with a water park to, to scale it up. Cause, you know, really the idea behind it, you know, for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to compare our region mm. to the, to the triangle yeah. and to Charlotte. 
And one of the things I feel like they have, uh, you know, is, is a little bit better entertainment. And mm. that, you know, factors into businesses and corporations staying here and moving here. Okay. Is, you know, if, if uh, an Emerald Point is a very successful water yeah. park yeah. as it is, uh, it's actually, it's like maybe one of the top 25 in the oh. United States. But it's more like, you know, how do we take that to the next level? You yeah, know, how yeah. do we build on something that's that's working uh, and use it to draw more? Probably a, it might be a little weird if you get into like a roller coaster seat and the seat is wet though, because then you know it's. Well, I don't know if you <laughs> if you've ever been to Dollywood. Uh, the, the, does the roller coaster like dry the? <laughs> <laughs> no, like because in Dollywood they have two separate theme parks. They okay. have a water park and they have you know roller coasters and all that, and yeah. you can buy passes for both of them. So you know I, that's an interesting idea that somehow you could you know c- connect the two a little more. I was I was thinking of it you know maybe being just. Is there is there okay so 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 you're not thinking about them being in the same location because that's that's what I was curious about. I mean cause... they would be close. You know. Oh yeah, because because I've, I've seen Wet and Wild, it doesn't seem like there's. The last time I went, I didn't, I didn't notice any like spare space nearby. Right. I, I think they're. I, I mean, you know, they as long as it's within you know like a ten oh. minute bus ride or something, it, it would mm-hmm. be I think doable. So well, right right now, I mean, construction and, and and gas is very expensive from what I understand. The price of wood has gone up. Not that theme parks are, are made of wood, but building some buildings might be. Uh, I'm not sure about the cost of steel. But would would now in particular be a be a good time to push forward this expansion? I mean, today probably not. Uh-huh. Um, but I would say, you know, 2022, 2023, okay. you know, what we're experiencing right now, just in, you know, in sort of in my economic opinion, you've just got the aftershock of the uh, from the pandemic. It's mm-hmm. Economic activity was really depressed, and we did a lot of stimulus, so it's bouncing back a lot faster than people had planned. So you're running into bottlenecks everywhere. Okay. Uh, but I, I would expect those to get sorted out. And, you mm. know, once that's, that's a five year process, right? What do you, what do you mean by bottlenecks for the audience? To... So, you know, it's, it's a lot of restricted doing, supply chain. Yeah. When like, you're doing yeah. industrial planning, you know, you have to get all the raw components and everything and forecast your demand and that, mm. you know, so a lot of that takes months and months. So if your demand forecast is wrong, like if you say, I thought I was going to need a hundred of these. So I bought materials for a hundred of these and then you need 500 of these. Well, you can't just go back right. and order the raw material because it's gone. Usually mm-hmm. someone else has already scooped it up. So mm-hmm. you either you have to wait and you have to raise, you know, your price. Well, you don't have to raise your price, but it's the economic so, thing to do. To <laughs> so, so I'm curious, is, is, is the idea of expanding the water park more to increase economy on the demand side by in- increasing consumption, getting more people to travel here? spend at local restaurants or is, it, or is it to attract other corporations to come in? It's, it's really both, you know, the, how the would that is, attract other corporations to come in? So it's usually sponsorships. Um, okay. and, and just, you know, one of the things I've found, you know, from traveling around to different cities is, uh, you know, if you're traveling to visit a company, uh, usually they like to take you out on an excursion. Right. Um, mm. and so, you know, the water park, you know, Right now, I don't know that it would be a corporate excursion, right? Mm. Uh, it's a good thing for families to do in the summer, but if it were a bigger operation, you know, that might encourage a company to move here. Okay. Because they would say, hey, we bring you in and hey, we'll, we'll go to the, you know, the water park or the theme park for, for a day and that'll be part of it. Okay. So it's just one of those amenities that I think, you know, bigger companies look for. Are you down to answer a, a bit of a trick question? I can try. Okay. I'm going to jump to environmental sustainability as well as, um, Helping Wet and Wild expand, you also want to 
get the task water resources with getting the water sense award from the EPA. Mm-hmm. I can't help but notice a bit of a, a irony. Yeah. Irony between wanting to yeah. help a wet and wild expand its business and also wanting to get this water sense award. Yeah. Of course, you're helping it expand in a, in a, in a way that doesn't use more water, but right. still. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a good point. You, if, yeah. you're, if you're, if you're going to do it, you know, uh-huh. you would, you would want to do it in a way that's hopefully ec- more ecologically mm-hmm. sustainable. So, mm-hmm. and that would be, you know, if you're making it mixed use, uh, that doesn't necessarily use as much water as maybe right, expanding right. the theme park itself. But, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that would definitely be something to, is, is, to is water, uh, scarcity a big problem in this region? It's fortunately right now it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. that's one of the things, I mean, in the, I think in the eighties, maybe in the nineties, it, it was. Uh, but we have, I think it's maybe it's called Randleman Lake, mm. as well as Townsend, Brant, and Higgins, and Jeanette. Uh, so we actually have a lot of water capacity right. in Guilford County. Right. Uh, so that's I remember the there was a drought here. several years ago, yeah. and it, there was never another drought again that I can remember. That was before mm-hmm. that. Before that, once that uh, lake kind of out towards Astro. So, so if water water scarcity isn't a problem, why do we need to get the Water Sense Award from the EPA? So. Uh, one of those things, the Water Sense Award, it's part of about making sure you're using it efficiently, and it's also about the quality of your water. Because I don't know if you've seen, there has, there's been some concerns with, uh, there's a contaminant called PFAS, I think that's how you pronounce it, that uh, uh, some people have thought you mm. know, is in our water or might be coming from, from the airport. What is it? Uh, it's called P- PFOS, something like that. Huh. Uh, so, and, and it's one of those things, you know, it's just a good idea to make sure that you have, uh, in my opinion, you know, quality program. So Durham, yeah. for example, Durham has that award and we do not. Mm. And so if you have companies, again, this goes back to, you know, a lot of companies now are big into sustainability. Right. And so, you know, if they're trying to make the decision, do I want to come to Durham? Do I want to come to Guilford County? Well, one of the things I can tell my employees is, hey, in Durham, they have this high quality water. They yeah. care about, you know, using it sustainably. Guilford County doesn't have it. Right? Have you ever... This is kind of out of the ballpark, but have you ever uh, read about um, a sort of controlled wetland uh, or, or or a natural wetland in order to purify water? Because that's something that I read about uh, when I was taking environmental science that, that really was interesting to me, using the power of nature, to pu- which already exists to purify water in order for human services. No, I hadn't heard about that. I mean, that, okay. again, if, it, if it's scalable... Uh, or, you know, I, I don't know that we, you know, like wetlands are probably more out east. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you'd have to look at that. Like, what does it cost? Well, wetland doesn't necessarily mean like the swamp or anything like right. the, the, the creek or like the land between. Or there, there, There's a bog in Piedmont Triad Environmental and I really love that bog. It's a cool because it's such a cool place. It's totally unique. All the trees are dead, but there's like grass growing. So I think it used to be a forest then it got flooded. Mm-hmm. And now it's like a, a wet grassland. Very interesting. Uh, we're getting a bit off topic, though. So back to economic game changers. Um, I think this is the one that probably all the listeners will be most curious about. Mm-hmm. Creating a new mixed news, mixed, mixed use sports arena connected to downtown Greensboro and then using that sports arena for esports. First of all, why? What, 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 what gave you the idea of uh, making esports a part of your campaign for county commissioner? Well, I mean, it's. It's one of those things that, you know, Guilford County, they call it tournament town, first of all, because yeah. we do a lot of sporting events here already. 
And whenever that first happened, you know, you people kind of take it for granted now. But, you know, there was a time when things like the ACC basketball tournament, you know, they were new sports and Guilford County helped build them and pave mm-hmm. the way. And that's one of the reasons we've been successful, I think, in the past. So, you know, the idea is it's like, hey, can we continue to be, you know, leaders in, you know, kind of sports innovation and kind of the frontier right now is esports. It's growing in popularity. You know, you have global, you know, potential audiences when they have tournaments, the the purses are bigger than some of the professional sporting tournaments. So to me, you know, that's just an opportunity is to say, hey, uh, it's still kind of in its formative stages. Yeah. So maybe we could take the lead in having, you know, competitive esports tournaments here. Um, you know, and again, that can filter back into, uh, you know, the academically, you know, if you have computer science type programs that are related to building better games, yeah, you know, yeah. if, if you're kind of a, a gaming hub. Uh, and then you have gaming type programming, you know, and themes behind it. You, that's kind of a next generation uh, economy that I could see us. I always building. thought that video games were a bit of a waste of time because, uh, well, my dad told me that if I played video games, it would rot my brain, you know. <laughs> uh, but then I started playing The Witcher. And I, I have to say I was really impressed by the depth of the world and, and the story. Uh, but from what I understand, esports are more around like games like Fortnite or like uh, Skyrim, which is more about like fast competitive play. Yep, right? usually or Counter Strike or yeah, League of Legends. Uh, huh. Yeah, stuff. And and I haven't played them as much lately, you know, with family and kids yeah, and everything. Yeah. But I I was kind of a lifelong gamer. I've never been, you know, I wouldn't say I was ever really addicted to it, but yeah, I yeah. habitually played them pretty often. And and they can be, you know, like I said, they can be addictive, which can be problematic. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they can also teach you a lot of different skills. Like one of my favorite games was Civilization, which I wouldn't stop <laughs> having to esports. But, you know, when you've managed an entire city, you know, and they, they're pretty thorough. I mean, there's YouTubers who make, like, videos about their Clash of Clan village. So right. I'm sure Civilization could, could have an probably, audience. Yeah. Probably it probably wouldn't be, like, something you would go to see live. But, yeah. like, yeah. But there's a lot of skills that you can learn from from gaming. I feel like so. So, so how is how does the esports industry operate now? Is it is it very centralized? Like you see with um, the traditional sports, like there's a the NBA, NFA. Uh, gosh, I watch so little sports. I only watch martial arts that um, I'm not even sure if I'm getting the names right. Uh, <laughs> the NBA is a real one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the answer to that is, I mean, they're trying to adopt that model. Uh, but it's still new, you know, and and the one of the things that's different is, like I said, with esports is they're global. So like League, you know, League of Legends is uh, it's very popular, you know, in like Asia and right, other, right. other countries. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's still, you know, people are still trying to figure out, I think, what is, it looks like. So. Is that a good thing for esports, though? Because one of the things I, I do know about Internet gaming is that a lot of gamers make money from like independent streaming and like instead of like belonging to like a formal organization you can you can make a lot of good money for yourself uh just by like what's it called live streaming mm-hmm. um uh is is there an do, do you have a preference to to one or the other and what would be the advantages and, and drawbacks versus the centralized versus the indie model because i think it's really interesting that esports is uh, well, 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 like, well, like, competitive esports do, does have organizations, but it seems to be less uh, centralized, right? And, and, and or, or rather, the central organizations seem to have less of a monopoly, right, on 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 online gaming. So, what is your take on that? 
I mean, I think the good thing with if you have something centralized is you have like a, a lead, yeah. so you can have you know rules, mm. and, and that it's kind of a different experience. Oh like, yeah, like, yeah, like I agree. Somebody streaming and kind of doing their own thing. Which so is that fine, like totally you know? different, totally different things? Is that not a valid question that asked? I mean, I, no, I think it's related. Huh. You know, you would still want to give people the because I could see the tension could come into you know somebody could join a league mm. and part of them joining a league could be them saying, hey, you can't do your streaming anymore because to compete in this, you know, we're making money off of it and we want to make the money. And mm-hmm. if you're just playing on your own and people are watching you and we're not getting that money, that could be it. You know, so I could see that being a a. a potential clash and I, I'll say I don't have an answer to that if that were to happen well that happens that is, quite a bit in, profe- in, it, in, re- in traditional sports right a lot of uh, also a lot of debate about college athletes whether or not they should get paid um, a lot of debate about whether you know uh, as, as, a, as a player on a team do you have free speech while you're like playing mm-hmm. and uh, of course like Colin Kaepernick made headlines uh, with his kneeling during the national anthem and even though like these players get Football players get a lot of money, but compared to the injuries they sustain, the time they put in, and that compared to the amount that they make for the owners of the teams, there's there's still quite a bit of a discrepancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now I want to ask about your uh, the last one in economic game changers is expand University Square into a collaborative campus focused on cutting edge graduate research. So are you saying that it's not already a, a cutting edge research thing? <laughs> it's a good it's a good attempt. Yeah. But you know, again, I'm, trying, to change? I, I'm looking at, you know, if you if you look at Research Triangle Park in Raleigh, which has been a huge, you know, uh economic driver for them, is uh, you know, having that type of partnership mm-hmm. between startup businesses and uh, you know, the uh uh the university. So, you know, right now you do have a oh. couple of graduate programs there where people are working together. Uh, but, you know, the idea would be you need a lot more of that. You know, it, it needs to be on a much bigger scale. You know, to me, just in principle, that goes back to why I would I would like to run is, you know, I, I feel like we have as a region hmm. been very modest with what we try to do. We're sort of I don't know if it, conservative is the right word. So does University Square refer to the UNCG, to be clear, or other universities? It's UNCG and A&T. So they have okay. a kind of a collaborative campus right, there right. on South Elm, but it's, you know, it's like one or two buildings. Mm-hmm. You know, well, UNCG does have uh, an entrepreneurship center where they, they help students start their own businesses. And there's also various centers for connecting with startups. But I don't know if it's innovation and tech focused. Specifically, no, and, yeah. And again, this is kind of painting with a broad brush, but it's like living here for 12 years. One of the things I've noticed, you know, people will always tell you, "Hey, we do have this program that does this, right?" Mm. But it's never, no, not up to scale. It's just not up to scale, right? And it's, right. it's what we'll do a lot of times. Again, is we'll have 15 programs that mm. uh, uh, all do a very similar thing and are just, you know, they they. What you need, in my opinion, is just a few very effective programs instead of 15 programs trying to do their own thing with very small groups okay. of people. But is, is there a disadvantage to institutionalizing entrepreneurship education? Entrepreneurship education? Because I, from what I've read about entrepreneurship and um, from my experience interning for entrepreneurs, it's there's there's kind of a culture of resistance towards government-led initiatives in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, 
maybe Greensboro is, is unique in that case because the Greensboro Chamber of Commerce does seem to be um, pretty popular. Um, so how, how, how do you deal with that discrepancy versus on, on one hand, you want to encourage entrepreneurship and, and innovation, but on the other hand, you're, you're doing this from the perspective of uh, being a, a government, um, uh, well, uh, well uh, uh, a county commissioner, mm-hmm. someone from the government. Right. Well, I mean, I, and I know we, we talked about Singapore earlier, but yeah. to me, that's kind of what I would look at is that, you know, they have a lot of state-led innovation that's very successful, mm-hmm. uh, right? And so basically trying to model, I would say, that, that type of approach. And now let's, let's pivot to public safety. So I want to ask about your plan to expand the GDP teen employment initiative into a full-fledged summer job program. And it says that this program, uh, from what I understand, connects teens in areas with high crime rates with employment opportunities. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. Can you give us some background on, on more on how this program started, how it functions, and whether it's been successful or not? Why does it need to expand? So it's uh, from our perspective, it was a new idea from the Greensboro chief of police, which is uh, basically to try to connect more teens with summer jobs and especially to have the police department leading it to have people, you know, get a little bit more familiar with law enforcement, mm. uh, you know, especially if they're teens in yeah. high crime rate areas, they might be more inclined to, you know, be, be nervous about law yeah. enforcement. So it's a way to kind of make them more comfortable. So that's, you know, this is kind of a bunch of different pieces coming together. Mm. So there was that initiative from the chief of police, uh, Justin Outling, who's actually running for city council, uh, has has an idea that's very similar for, for the city, you know, to, to do something like this. Uh, but I actually did a little research and, uh, you know, so I'll say Raleigh has something like this. Charlotte has something like this. Um, and, you know, so basically the initiative from the chief was just, hey, I think this is a good idea. Let's try to help these kids find jobs. Uh, and then you look at Charlotte and Raleigh, they actually have programs that are funded that do this systematically. What sort um, of jobs? So uh, there's really, I guess there were three kinds that I saw. There's just, there's the, uh, you know, kind of the, with the police force, you hmm. can do, you could be an in- intern helping out the police for, uh, course. Uh, you could help out the, uh, the court system. Uh, or they could connect you with the city government or with private employers. So private employers yeah. can sign on and, and you basically, uh, you know, the idea was basically, I think, 10 hours a week you okay. know, for three months during the summer to, uh, you know, when a lot of when they wouldn't be in school. So the idea is to start giving them that professional um, experience. Okay. And you know, sort of my spin on it is, uh, you know, we could do this at the county level instead because we actually there is a county sort of body called the juvenile crime prevention council sort of their job is to help you know keep kids from getting into the criminal justice system hmm. uh, so we're more set up i feel like than the city to do this yeah uh, so you know we we can take the lead on that and then you know where it's coming from the chief of police is i think a good place to start is getting people who are in uh you know zip codes where there's high crime hmm. rates getting those kids uh, jobs that are related to the court system or law enforcement so that they get a little bit more familiar with it, right? So they're mm-hmm. not, uh, you know, the, the idea is it could be a deterrent. It's also giving them something to do, uh, you know, because ideally, because the other thing that we, I don't know if we touched on in here, is we're having a shortage of first responders. So there's a shortage of police officers, firefighters, you know, teachers. So if you're giving them exposure to that job in law enforcement, yeah maybe they would want to go into law enforcement. And so then if you have people from high crime zip codes that are choosing to join law enforcement, you know, you're increasing employment and you're, you know, 
it's I, to me, I think those are a lot yeah. of things that can help drive the crime rate. It down. sounds sounds so, really good. I've yeah. considered uh, joining law enforcement mm-hmm. as well, but I have to say I, I can foresee there being a lot of resistance to this to this program the way it's set up because if you're a, a, a teen from a high crime area and then you're like joining law enforcement, well, there, there's already a lot of mistrust mm-hmm. in those communities, and this is a, a national issue, not just in Guilford, but in uh, not just in uh, yeah, Guilford, but in the whole nation. So would, would your friends call you a snitch? Like, how would you, like, phrase this program in a way where it doesn't seem like you're if, – if people view it as, like, cops versus the people, mm-hmm. how that, 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 that's going to take a lot of work to change. How would you begin to change that? I mean, I, I'll say the, the program is the way to begin yeah. to change that, in, in my opinion, is to, is to say, you know, start fairly early – you know, not when people are in their late 20s or 30s and have kind of already formulated their opinions is to say, hey, you know, you're a teenager in the summer. It would be nice for you to have a job. So why don't you have a job? You know, and if you're putting them in contact with the police, mm-hmm. then, you know, hopefully they're getting that experience from a different side. So right? this is 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 the change from this program meant to be two a, a one way change or two way change? Is it meant to change the communities to increase trust in the communities, but also um it's it's meant to do that but is it, it do you also foresee this changing the culture of the police department itself whereas to how those police might interact I mean, you, those yeah, i can see it being a two-way change yeah they have community policing with you know, the idea where the, the policemen should be familiar with the community that yeah. they're in and that's a way to do that because historically i think it's been a little bit different mm-hmm. um, or at least you know i i would say way back when we probably had community policing and then more mm-hmm. the idea was uh, the police officer should be impartial. So you can just bring someone from outside and they can come in and kind of have a clear, you know, not taking sides and dispense justice that way. And the problem with that, you know, as you alluded to, is it's hard to trust that person because they right. come in from the outside and they don't know all the particulars that are going on in that community. Right. So we're sort of trying to pivot, I think, back towards the community model. Uh, and this is kind of a way to help do that, I think. Excellent. And, and, and you... Also mentioned that you want to inc- implement family support in order to increase gender diversity mm-hmm. in uh, public in public safety. So is that in, in, with police specifically or firefighters? For uh, yeah, I think b- both yeah. specifically because I mean you know we know uh, you know like you know, not being stereotypical mm-hmm. but teachers a lot of times predominantly you know female mm-hmm. police officers predominantly mm-hmm. you know men firefighters predominantly men. So you know I I think you know having an increase in gender diversity we would be good, especially for the police department, just because, you know, if you look at the studies, the studies do show, uh, you know, female officers tend to be, you know, associated with less, you know, complaints, right. less, less violence. And so, you know, it's just, I think there would be a lot of positives mm. to making women more comfortable with being in the police force. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Sounds like a very, um, both good for the opportunity for the individuals and good for the community. Now, uh, this last question isn't necessarily uh, a question about one specific policy, but there, I can't help but notice that a lot of the initiatives that you're proposing, um, they they might they might increase uh, the cost of money, the the amount of money needs to be spent. For example, uh, competitive city compensation. Uh, ed- encourage special assignments in education, uh, creating the, the new advisory commissions and um, your sustainability goals. Oh, um, for example, using solar powers at city facilities 
and of course investing in the mixed use sports arena. How do you plan to to fund all this if you were elected? Would there have to be a tax increase, or would you uh, get investment get do like a public private partnership uh, with with certain businesses to do this? How how would that work? And if there does need to be a tax increase, how would you know that that wouldn't negatively affect the community? So uh, I mean you don't know at the yeah. end of the day. I would say I would strongly suspect that it wouldn't negatively affect the community. And it would, would or wouldn't? It would not. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, yeah, obviously I wouldn't propose it if I... Uh, <laughs> County but, commissioner yeah, comes out. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm going to damage the community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and it would be all that, you know, especially for, for stadiums, you know, public-private partnerships are usually a good idea. One of the things I'll say, you know, is... Uh, one of the primary ways that we're funded with the county is through property taxes, and that has to do with the value of the real estate. Uh, and, you know, when you revalue the property and the property value goes up, you can get more revenue from mm, that okay. without increasing the, the tax rate. So, you know, ideally, if what you're doing is improving right. the quality of life in your community, you know, uh, the rise in the tax base can offset, you know, the need to increase the tax rate. So if there's more development coming in here, you know, if you have people, you know, you're building the stadium and there are more companies that come here because of that, that grows your tax base and you can have more revenue without having to raise the the tax rates. Um, So, you know, and then there's also, we talked about zero-based budgeting before. So the first thing I want to do, you know, is you can go in and look what are we doing today that's maybe not working as well and can we shift some of those funds around to these other projects that might perform better, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, I mean, it's a classic political answer is to say, you know, I don't know at the end, is the answer going to be we need to raise the property tax by one mm. or five cents? You know, I would hope that it's not because I am an economist by mm-hmm. nature. So I would love to be able to say, hey, I can do go in there and do all this and lower property taxes, yeah. right? But, you know, the fact is there's so many variables you're not going to know until the end. But, you know, I can say, I would not vote to do it unless I thought, you know, that the long-term impact was going to be that there's going to be more development and higher incomes so that people would be better off. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Um, Lastly, I want to ask about your experience. This has nothing to do with policy of being the Aikido, is it pronounced Aikido? Aikido. Aikido president, uh, president of the Aikido club Mm -hmm. at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Um, that's just so I, I, I watch a lot of YouTube about martial arts. I haven't heard great things about Aikido because I've heard that Aikido's philosophy is defend yourself without hurting your opponent, which can be very hard. Is that accurate? I would not say that's accurate. No. OK. <laughs> so what, what is what is Aikido? How does it differ from other grappling arts like jujitsu, judo? I mean, I would say it's it's defend yourself. And First of all, where, where is it where is it from? So it's from Japan. Okay. Um, yeah, there was a guy, I, I, however you say his name, like Mori Yushiba was kind of the okay. inventor of Aikido, and the style that I practice called Tamiki style Aikido is actually it's like a judo uh, hybrid. All right. It's like teaching Aikido using judo methods, mm. uh, and it's really it's more like giving yourself the option of hurting your opponent. Um, that That's the thing. And because a lot of the other martial arts, like karate is very combative, you know, usually. So if whatever you're doing, 
once you decide to make that strike, right. you're definitely going to hurt them, right? Right. The philosophy behind Aikido, it, you know, they, they do the grappling and the, and the throws, and you can do it in a way that you kind of have the choice. Do I want to break your arm <laughs> or not, you know? Uh, so th- that was why it kind of uh, appealed to me uh, from from that perspective. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. So is it like Brazilian jiu-jitsu where you yourself have to uh, get on the ground and grapple with your opponent or more, more like judo where you're from a standing? Yeah, it's more like judo, which, okay. again, and again, this is just not to badmouth jiu-jitsu, but it's one of the things that I, I like about it is it's about – standing you can yeah. do things when you're kneeling but ideally you want to be standing right because uh aikido is more about engaging multiple attackers that's one of the things our sensei would say it's just like you know jujitsu can be great if you grab someone to the ground and you grapple but if there's three people that you're fighting you know you pull one person to the ground and then their two friends are just going to start kicking right you, that's right, gonna be right. It, right so that's why uh-huh. it's like jujitsu is just not you know for okay like, uh, I've always been more of a striker type, like kickboxing and, and taekwondo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but recently, I've been thinking about taking either a judo or or, or jujitsu class in order to uh, add vari- variety to my style. So now I'll definitely be considering aikido. All right, thank you, Derek. This has been uh, economist and candidate for uh, Guilford County Commissioner, uh, Derek Mobley. Uh, thank you, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Uh I wish you the best of luck uh, in your campaign and um, just just hope that some of these big ideas get more attention because I think these ideas definitely deserve uh, more attention. This has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you.